I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. That one was weird. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of Season 2 of IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have another medical case for you, and... Uh, JJ is going to present it for us. Just a reminder that all the cases on our podcast are presented anonymously, and some of the names and details have been changed just so that they're not super recognizable. Mm, to protect the critters and their people. That's right. And their vets. Yes. Uh, today's case is about George. George is a five-year-old male castrated domestic short hair kitty. He is both indoor and outdoor. And he has been lethargic and not eating for about 48 hours. Um, he's also been pretty vocal. The owner thinks he might be constipated because he looks like he's been straining in the litter box. Okay. That seems suspicious. What are we seeing on physical exam? Uh, he's quiet, alert, and responsive. Temperature's normal. Uh, lays quietly on the exam table during the visit. Heart and lung sounds are normal abdominal palpation he seems pretty uncomfortable and a large firm urinary bladder is palpated oh dear well there really is just one possible diagnosis here and that is urethral obstruction what's that so urethral obstruction occurs when the urethra that's the tube from the bladder to the outside world becomes blocked and urine can't pass it's um, a life-threatening complication of lower urinary tract disease in cats. It's common, and there's a couple of potential causes. So you can have physical obstructions like uroliths, that's urinary stones, urethral plugs, masses, or even strictures. Or you can have mechanical obstructions from things like urethral spasm or swelling. So you mentioned feline lower urinary tract disease. What is that exactly, and why does that develop? Well, this could really be its whole own episode, so we're going to keep this pretty brief. But the current thoughts is that cats with interstitial cystitis, or feline lower urinary tract disease, that's abbreviated FLUTD, and a lot of people just say fluted as the uh, acronym. <laughs> Fluted. Those kitties, we think, have an imbalance between the sympathetic nervous system and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. This imbalance causes decreased blood flow and release of inflammatory mediators inside the lower urinary tract, so the bladder and the urethra. And that creates edema or swelling, pain, and it can create smooth muscle spasms. The pain that these kitties experience can in turn cause the urethral um, smooth muscle to experience inflammation and to not function correctly. And this can progress ultimately to obstruction of the urethra, most of the time in boy kitties, but it can also occur in girl cats as well. So when the urethral obstruction occurs, why does it make the cat so sick? That's a great question. Uh, the short answer is, when you can't pee, the body enters a cascade of terribleness. <laughs> the long answer is it has to do with increased intravesicular pressure in the bladder. So intravesicular pressure is just literally the pressure of the urine inside the bladder. Now, if it gets really high, like when you can't pee, um, that causes necrosis or 
like tissue death and injury to the mucosa, that's the surface that lines the inside of the bladder. The pressure also increases in the ureters, that's the tube from the bladder back up to the kidney, and the pressure goes up in the kidneys themselves. And eventually, this causes the glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, basically the ability of the kidneys to do their job, to to go down. The concentration ability in the renal tubules is impacted, and that's going to create difficulty resorbing water and sodium, so pulling water and sodium back into the body, and difficulty excreting or peeing out phosphorus, potassium, urea nitrogen, creatinine, and hydrogen ions. And if this continues to happen for, say, 24 to 48 hours, uremia develops, and that causes depression, vomiting, and anorexia as clinical signs. Now, both mucosal damage and primary renal failure can occur as a consequence of all of these things. When the pet gets anorectic and starts vomiting, we contribute to the dehydration and hypovolemia, and then we often get a metabolic acidosis. The potassium goes up because it can't be excreted in the urine effectively. Hyperkalemia or elevated potassium is the most common life-threatening complication because it creates effects in the heart, like a slow heart rate and eventual asystole, which means like a flat line. And this cascade of badness leads to some pretty classic physical exam findings, many of which we were seeing with George the cat. Those possible physical exam findings might include Non-productive straining in the litter box and vocalization. Um, If an obstruction has occurred recently, the cat may be relatively normal in physical exam. If the obstruction has been present for greater than 24 hours, signs of systemic illness are often present, such as vomiting, anorexia, lethargy, altered mentation. Sometimes they can come in recumbent and cold. Uh, They can be dehydrated. They can have an increased respiratory rate, bradycardia, or a slow heart rate. They can experience hypothermia. If both a slow heart rate and a low body temperature are found, this has a 98% predictive value for severely elevated potassium. A firm distended urinary bladder is the classic finding on palpation. Are there some types of cats who are more likely to develop urethral obstruction? To a degree, yes. uh, Higher body weight. Um, Cats who eat dry food exclusively. Male cats usually, but urinary obstruction can occur in females as well. Um, There's no breed disposition. Adult cats are more likely to develop urinary obstruction compared to kittens. In one study, the mean age was 4.3 years of age. So with George, uh, we feel pretty confident he has urinary obstruction. What tests and treatments does he need? So these kitties need a bunch of things. So we're going to have to do quite a bit of multitasking in these cases. In today's episode, we are going to focus on the gold star treatment plan for management of these patients. In our next episode, the snack episode, companion episode, we're going to cover alternate treatment methods like serial decompressive cystocentesis and the, quote, unblock and go home method. Uh, But for today, we're going to focus on like full treatment plan A gold star thing. So step number one is to give that cat some pain medicine. I recommend doing this first. I'll even ask permission from the owners to administer pain meds right away, even if they haven't really decided if they want to do full therapy yet or not, because the cats uh, that come in with this are really in distress. You know, even if the owner ends up not treating, it's really easy to write off pain medicine. It's pretty inexpensive. 
every once in a while, I'll give the cat pain medicine and the owners are taking kind of a while to decide what they want to do. <laughs> Occasionally, I'll have a cat spontaneously urinate after getting medicine. So like, if if that's going to happen, it doesn't happen all the time or even a lot, but just like the couple of times it's happened has been super worth it <laughs> um, because then we know like, hey, this kitty has a pretty high chance of recovering. That's good news. I personally like buprenorphine, but you can use hydromorphone as well. And then a lot of people will give midazolam in addition to pain medicine, not necessarily just by itself. Now, that's not a pain medicine, but midazolam can provide relief of anxiety associated with pain and distress. And I think it's really good for cats who are grumpy when they come in. <laughs> the next step after giving some pain medicine is that we're going to draw some blood. We're going to try to get an, a minimum database together on the kitty. And then we're also going to place an IV catheter. So for the minimum database, that, that does include a urinalysis. Some People will go ahead and do a cystocentesis, which means using a needle to collect urine directly from the bladder. Uh, but some wait and get the urine after the pet has been catheterized. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the, those options later. Fluid therapy is arguably the most important part of managing feline urethral obstruction. Is it safe to give IV fluids when you've not yet relieved the obstruction? It is safe. Um, and not just safe, but recommended by a large number of specialists. You know, the cats there in the hospital with you, many of them are super dehydrated and a lot of them are like in shock and flat out and in really bad off. Relieving the obstruction will help kind of down the road. But the thing that we need to do is to support these guys so that they can survive the sedation and anesthesia that they need to relieve the urinary obstruction. Because if they die with sedation and anesthesia, then we haven't really helped them very much. So we're going to place an IV catheter and start fluid resuscitation before we relieve the obstruction. That's not going to create a bladder rupture. Remember, it takes time for the fluids to get into circulation and be processed by the kidneys and go down into accumulate into the bladder. So like if we're talking about even a 30 minute to an hour process of stabilizing the patient, like that extra fluid is not going to like magically go straight to the bladder and like cause it to burst or anything like that. And if you were worried about that, then you could do a decompressive cystocentesis to help relieve some of that pressure, uh, and then you wouldn't have to worry about that. So administering fluids helps support circulatory volume, and it dilutes the serum potassium. And like we mentioned earlier, the elevated potassium is really one of the main things that causes those life-threatening clinical signs. Back in the past, normal saline has been considered the fluid of choice, but that's no longer the case. Similar to what we talked about when we were discussing our Addison's disease episode, 0.9% uh, NaCl is an acidifying solution, and kitties with urethral obstruction tend to develop metabolic acidosis. So if we're giving them an acidifying solution, that's going to be a little bit of a problem. There are two studies backing up the recommendation to use other types of fluids. One compared normal saline to norm R, and they found no difference in the outcome with the cases or in the reduction of serum potassium levels. And another compared 0.9% saline and LRS, and no difference in outcome or reduction of serum potassium levels was seen. No changes in kidney values were seen between the two groups, but the LRS did result in a more rapid improvement of acid-base values in the severely affected cats. So 
This study actually showed that LRS was more beneficial than normal saline. So if you work with a practitioner who hasn't been to a urinary obstruction CE in a minute and is still really adamant about reaching for that normal saline, share this information with them. Give a look, uh, you know, look it up on VIN or look it up in your, your newer textbooks and y'all talk about it. Now, shock rates of fluids might be needed in really critically ill patients. The next thing that we would consider doing is an electrocardiogram. And ideally, we should really be getting an ECG on all cats with the urethral obstruction, even if they don't have severe signs, but especially those ones with severe signs, we really need to do this. There are some major ECG changes associated with hyperkalemia, that's elevated potassium, and those are a prolonged PR interval, decreased or absent P waves, wide QRS complexes, short QT intervals, tall T waves, and then as hyperkalemia worsens, you can get some ultra bad stuff like a sinoventricular rhythm, atrial standstill, ventricular fibrillation, and asystole or flatline. Although IV fluid therapy and eventual relief of the obstruction are the main ways to get that potassium down to normal, if we're seeing ECG abnormalities, we need to take some steps to protect the heart before we go anesthetizing that patient. So administering calcium gluconate is one option. Now that does not directly decrease potassium, but it protects the heart by antagonizing the effects of the high potassium on the heart muscle. The other option is to use regular insulin because it causes an intracellular shift of potassium. Now, after you give regular insulin, you're also going to have to give dextrose so that the cat doesn't become hypoglycemic. We're going to want to get some imaging on these kitties. Taking x-rays to look for urinary stones is a good idea. Obviously, you're going to see a distended bladder as well. And then ultrasound can be a little bit more sensitive in finding small uroliths and even masses. We can also use the ultrasound to check to see do we have any free fluid in the abdomen, which might be indicative of a urinary bladder rupture. And then by the time we kind of have all those things done, our lab work should be coming back. JJ, what sorts of findings can we see in these urethral obstruction kitties on lab work? You see things like azotemia, which is elevated uh, BUN and creatinine, hyponatremia, which is a low sodium, hyperphosphatemia, which is an elevated phosphorus, hyperglycemia, which is elevated blood glucose level, uh, hyperkalemia, which is the elevated potassium. That's the one that causes those possible ECG changes we discussed earlier. Hypocalcemia, which is a low calcium. Blood gases uh, may show evidence of acidosis. Blood gases are often not available in general practice, however. Yeah. On urinalysis, you may see hematuria, which is blood in the urine, possible proteinuria, protein in the urine, glucosuria, which is glucose in the urine. The sediment, um, the textbook says to look for white blood cells, bacteria, crystals, and casts. But um, in both of our experiences, mostly all you're going to see is just blood, just red blood cells everywhere. Even if you try to dilute it, that's something that you said you've seen a lot. And I agree. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might could see 
a few other things, but it's really hard to get a good feel for exactly what you're dealing with because it's just a sea of red blood cells. I agree. <laughs> Maybe in those that are like really newly blocked that don't have that ultra, you know, fire engine red mm-hmm. urine yet. So you can see some some good things on sediment, but most of the UO cats that I see have that fire engine red urine and it's mm-hmm. just like <laughs> It's just like uh, looking at a blood smear is what it looks like. It's like crazy. Yeah, a blood smear that's like in a highly concentrated area, not the feathered edge. Yeah. It's just, I mean, wall to wall, they're all fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your urine-specific gravity can vary. Now, after we review the patient's blood work and make sure they're stable, um, the next step is urinary catheterization. So... Let's talk about that, G. Yeah. For urethral catheterization, uh, now that's going to usually require heavy sedation or anesthesia. There are lots of different protocols. Uh, I don't necessarily even have a favorite one that I like. I kind of uh, do different things depending on what's available at the different hospitals that I'm at. One other thing that you can do in addition to sedation or anesthesia that would reduce the requirements of those drugs is sacrococcygeal epidural. And you can use that to provide regional anesthesia to the uh, penis <laughs> in the lower <laughs> urinary tract. But the biggest thing with these guys is don't forget the thermal support and typical supportive care for anesthetized patients, like we reviewed in our anesthesia episode with Dr. Love back in season one. Remember that the individual drugs that we use are usually less important in having a successful case than the supportive care and monitoring that we use on those patients. We always want to start by looking at the tip of the penis and massaging it because sometimes that's enough to dislodge a mucus plug. And I've had that happen a couple times where you extrude the penis, it's looking all terrible, there's like a little schmoo there, and if you kind of massage the penis, massage the penis, then all of a sudden the cat will urinate. And man, is that less traumatic and expensive than having to pass a catheter. So always do that. Stand out of the line of fire. <laughs> yes, that is accurate because a lot of times there'll be that built up pressure. And the second that the uh, obstruction is relieved, urine will like shoot out like a jet stream <laughs> and I always forget. So I always get like completely sprayed with urine every time I unblock a cat. You would think I would know after a while, but I always just forget. Anyway, we're going to want to use a three and a half or five French urinary catheter. And there are multiple types available and just as many opinions about what to do and what to use. <laughs> I personally like the slippery Sam type catheters because they're flexible. Um, but that yellow anchor thing sometimes allows the catheter to slip out while the anchor remains sutured to the cat. And that makes me pissed off. <laughs> and, you know, like, come on. Mm-hmm. So it's frustrating. I like to use this for indwelling. Some people use a more rigid, old-fashioned polypropylene Tomcat catheter to unobstruct and then replace it with either a red rubber catheter, that's a polyvinyl catheter, or a slippery SAM, which is, are you ready? Go for it. Polytetrafluoroethylene. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As an indwelling catheter, that's to improve comfort. And I honestly have moved to this because I have a really hard time unblocking with a slippery SAM or a red rubber catheter. I have to use that more rigid one to get them unblocked. But I feel like they are more comfortable when they have that more flexible catheter. So that's what I put for indwelling then. 
There are some sources that say polypropylene catheters are straight up not recommended as indwelling catheters. Those are those more rigid, old school Tomcat catheter. But in my experience, it's still very common to see them used as indwelling. Mm -hmm. But so just FYI, uh, there are a lot of people that straight up don't recommend doing that. So think about maybe if you can branch out, maybe get some, try it, see how you like it. I use a three and a half French urinary catheter. Others use a five French. The reason I use a three and a half is that I've just literally never been able to pass a five French on these little bitty teeny weenies. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Rude. Um, (laughs) Use of the larger size might decrease the risk of catheter obstruction or kinking while the pet's in the hospital, but it could also create more urethral irritation. One study showed a decreased reobstruction rate at 24 hours with a three and a half French catheter compared to the group with five French catheters. Uh, But then another study showed no difference. Hmm. Now, we want to use something to help flush behind the catheter as it goes to help relieve the obstruction. It's very uncommon for you to be able to just, boop, pop one straight in. (laughs) And if that does happen, then it's probably like inflammation or urethral spasm and not a true, like, physical blockage. Mm-hmm. I use sterile saline to flush behind. Others use a combination of sterile saline and sterile lubricant, which I had actually not heard of before until I researched for this podcast. So I'm going to try it the next time I have one. Now, this can be used to help advance the urinary catheter. And if you use a mixture of saline and lubricant, it might be beneficial because it allows the distribution of lubricant along the urinary tract, and that might decrease urethral irritation or damage during catheterization. So that's pretty interesting. After the catheter is successfully inserted, the urinary bladder should be emptied, and then we want to flush it with sterile saline repeatedly to remove inflammatory or crystalline material. And I uh, will literally flush the bladder and pull the saline out. I mean, five, six, seven times until what I'm getting back is pretty similar color-wise to the sterile saline that I'm putting in. Mm -hmm. Some of these cats will have a tremendous amount of mucus in the bladder as well, and that mucus can subsequently block them again. So if we can dilute that mucus and get it the heck out of the bladder, that's going to help these guys a lot. Indwelling catheters should always be attached to a closed collection system, and then we hospitalize the pet. So no sending home with a urinary catheter in place, no hospitalizing the pet with a urinary catheter that's not on a closed system, no good. The reason a closed system is so important is we don't want to introduce bacteria uh, from the environment up into the urinary tract. And also a closed system helps us measure the ins and outs. And that's going to be really important, uh, as we're going to learn here in a little bit, when that kitty cat starts producing a ton of urine. We've got to keep up with those losses. I also recommend placing an e-collar on these guys because having them pull the urinary catheter out super sucks. Yes, it does. (laughs) Yeah, it (laughs) super sucks. The indwelling catheter is left in place a variable amount of time depending on the case, typically somewhere between 24 and 72 hours. Many clinicians will wait until the urine returns to a normal color. And there was at least one study I read that showed that Waiting until the urine returns to a normal color was like a better indication of the cat being ready to go home than if you set like a timer. So some people will be like 24 hours only and then pull it at, at the 24th hour. Um, but that was shown to be less of, less effective. Basically, those cats have a higher chance of reblocking. 
So I typically keep them until the urine is not that crazy red color anymore. Sometimes naughty patients remove their own urinary catheter sooner than we would have liked. <laughs> or the stupid yellow thing on the slippery Sam is like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I dropped the catheter <laughs> and it falls out, which is super stupid. But when that happens, unless it's happened like one hour after the, after getting them unblocked, which is super irritating. Um, if it's been a reasonable amount of time, then usually I give them a chance to pee on their own before I put it back in. because. The more times that we catheterize the urinary bladder, that's like more inflammation that we're introducing, more chance of infection, all those things. If we're using saline during the process of passing the urinary catheter, how can we get a sample of uh, urine for testing? Great question. So the trick to this is uh, that you can obtain a urine sample at the time of passing the catheter, uh, but you need to use the smallest amount of saline possible. So just enough to get the catheter passed, then right away, once the catheter slides in, withdraw like 10 or more mils of urine, discard that, then connect to sterile syringe and withdraw your sample for testing. Alternatively, cystocentesis can be performed, which we mentioned a little bit earlier, but this is somewhat controversial. We're going to be talking more about decompressive cystocentesis in next week's snack episode, so be sure to check that out. So once we have the urinary catheter in place and the obstruction is relieved, we need to initiate medication for the patient comfort and to reduce symptoms. And there are several medicines that we might need to consider for management of our urethral obstruction kitties. So we're just going to kind of go over them in sections here. The first is antibiotic therapy. Now, antibiotics are going to be considered a maybe drug, not an always drug in these cases. The incidence of bacterial infection in urethral obstruction cats is actually pretty low. In one study of 10 urethral obstruction cats, zero of them had a positive urine culture initially. So as an inciting cause, bacterial UTI is not common at all. However, six of those cats did develop a UTI in association with catheterization. So what do we do? Well, the current recommendation is to culture the urine at the time of catheter removal, and we want to withhold antibiotics in patients who don't have signs of sepsis or pyelonephritis until we get culture results back, and we want to make a decision based on those culture results. Um, Culturing the catheter tip is no longer recommended due to the potential for contamination of the catheter tip during removal. Also, the specificity for results on catheter tip cultures is low. So, how we're going to collect that sample when we are like, okay, we're ready to remove the catheter. Somehow we're basically going to close off the closed collection system. So you can disconnect it completely and plug the catheter, or you can just clamp off the bag. And we want to let urine accumulate in the bladder for a little bit of time. Then where we're going to go to pull it, before we pull it, we're going to disconnect the closed collection system and attach a sterile syringe, withdraw that urine that we've allowed to accumulate, send that for culture, then we're going to pull the catheter out. One other area that we need to consider is continued fluid therapy. So kitty cats who are unblocked, a lot of them will develop post-obstructive diuresis. This means that the cat's urine production is increased because the urinary obstruction is not there anymore, and this is pretty common. In one study, post-obstructive diuresis occurred in 46% of the cats within six hours after relief of the obstruction. 
Cats with post-obstructive diuresis can produce as much as 100 to 150 mils of urine an hour. So if you're thinking like we're on maintenance fluids and we're producing 100 milliliters of urine an hour, that cat's going to get dehydrated really quick. (laughs) And we don't want to let our cats that are on IV fluids get dehydrated (laughs) like we need to be (laughs) monitoring this. So that's why we're going to attach a closed collection system. So we're going to monitor the fluid input and the urine output. While cats who present with obstruction usually have a high potassium, like we've been talking about, their potassium levels often drop really rapidly and they can become too low following relief of the obstruction. So we need to watch that carefully and we might need to add extra potassium into the fluids, which seems weird since they probably came in with hyperkalemia and now we're treating them with potassium. But this is a super common finding. And we want to make that decision based off of serial blood electrolyte measurements. So speaking of lab work monitoring, how often should we be doing that in hospitalized post-urinary obstruction kitties? So electrolytes and renal values should be monitored at least every 12 to 24 hours. But electrolytes usually need to be monitored a little bit more frequently than that starting off. So I personally like to run an electrolyte panel every six to eight hours for the first day just because I've seen those changes happen so quick. And we don't want to let hypokalemia persist because that causes problems as well. Other medications that we might need to consider, analgesics. Obviously, these kitties are going to be uncomfortable. Buprenorphine is my personal favorite uh, at providing pain control. But you can use other opiates like a fentanyl CRI or PRN hydromorphone. And then NSAIDs, hmm, maybe... I personally don't use them. It makes me too nervous about the renal complications. But plenty of other clinicians seem to use them in urethral obstruction cases without issues. So um, I would say definitely let's not use NSAIDs for cats that are super azotemic, patients that aren't well hydrated, like our sicker ones. I would kind of avoid this. And then remember, like most NSAIDs are only labeled for three days in cats, and they need something longer than three days for pain, even after they go home. I often will send 14 days of sublingual buprenorphine home with my um, post-obstruction cats because it seems like they need pain control for at least that long. So one other area to consider would be urethral relaxants or antispasmodics. The thought behind these is we're going to relax the musculature and help urine pass easier and try to prevent urethral spasms. There's a little bit of controversy about how well these work and if they work at all. There are alpha-1 antagonists like acepromazine, phenoxybenzamine, and prazosin. These cause smooth muscle relaxation. Phenoxybenzamine takes a while to become effective, so it's less helpful in the immediate post-obstructive period. Now, only the proximal urethra, that means closest to the bladder, so one quarter to one third of that proximal urethra is smooth muscle. So alpha-1 antagonists actually have minimal effect on the distal urethra which is kind of a common site of um, spasms and uh, where the obstruction was likely to have occurred in the first place. Prazosin has been found to decrease recurrence of obstruction when compared to phenoxybenzamine, but I couldn't find any studies that were like, let's treat this cat with prazosin and this cat without and keep everything else the same and see if there's a substantial difference. I don't think that those studies exist. There are some clinicians that absolutely swear by this and use it with every single cat. And then there are clinicians, honestly, like me, who haven't really seemed 
to find it that beneficial. So I generally don't use it because it's kind of like one more thing to have to force the cat to take orally and it's kind of a pain in the butt. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I would really love to see some studies on this to know what the best course of action is. Diazepam and midazolam are striated muscle relaxants, and we could put alprazolam into this category as well. There is a concern for hepatic necrosis with diazepam. It's not common, but it has happened. I personally like midazolam for hospitalized patients and alprazolam for sending them home. I've had some really good success with it. We aren't really sure how much benefit any of these urethral relaxants provide overall, and again, we just need more investigation. Now, there's one group of medications that is contraindicated in cats with indwelling urinary catheters, and that is steroids. <laughs> so let's not use steroids in these cats. <laughs> steroids increase the risk of UTI and pyelonephritis, and they're also not effective for urinary tract inflammation. So drop the steroids, do something <laughs> different. Now, there is one important thing that we need to be sure we review with the pet's owners, ideally before we even initiate full treatment in the first place. And that is the rate of reoccurrence in urethral obstruction. Reobstruction is unfortunately common and can occur at any time, days, weeks, months, or years after the initial presentation. And we must always, always, always prepare the pet owners for this possibility. And if the pet continues to experience urethral obstruction, surgery is indicated. In these cases, a perineal urethrostomy is indicated to widen the urethral opening. The other indication for potential surgery would be if uroliths were noted during imaging of the bladder. A cystotomy is performed when we need to remove urinary stones from the bladder, uh, but in these cases, surgery is delayed until after the patient is stable and rehydrated. Once the kitty is ready to go home, what do we need to do to manage them long-term? The first step is to realize that long-term management is going to be necessary. Mm -hmm. Owners need to be prepared that this kitty will always be at risk and urination needs to always be monitored. If urinary stones were found and removed, analysis should be conducted to determine the type, and the type of stone will dictate preventative measures in the future. Several prescription diet options exist for cats with a history of urethral obstruction. Uh, feeding a canned food is associated with decreased rates of obstruction. Ideally, the kitty would eat a canned-only prescription diet. Costs can be an issue with this, however. The next best choice is a over-the-counter canned exclusive diet. And um, the main thing to get out of that is that those canned foods have lots of water in them and cats need that, mm-hmm. flush that system on out. If a dry food is to be fed, it should be the prescription diet. Feeding an over-the-counter dry food exclusively after a urinary obstruction is not recommended. You can also should increase water consumption. You can do a fountain. Kitties like to have that fresh running water, like you see them drink out of sinks or toilets. Those cute little kitty fountains that it's constantly kind of circulating the water. So a lot of times that entices them to drink. You can also add water to the food. And uh, something that I have heard, and I don't know if you agree or not, G, is to not put their water near their food. Hmm. Instinctually, they tend to not drink as well if that's though they're near each other. I have never heard that, but I'm having like an epiphany right now. <laughs> because my old cat Small Fry is addicted to the fountain. Mm-hmm. 
but the fountain's not in the bedroom where she's living with us right now. And so I finally moved the fountain into the bathroom because I was, uh, basically she was waking me up four and five times a night in the middle of the night to get up and go drink water and then demanding to be let back into the bedroom right away. <laughs> so, um, anyway, long story short, I moved her water fountain into the bathroom mm-hmm. and she won't use it, <laughs> but it's beside her food. Maybe that's it. Okay. Okay. So after we get off recording this podcast, I'm going to move the fountain again <laughs> to a separate area of the bedroom. We're going to create our own study. Can. God. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. Time okay. out over. Go ahead. Another thing you can do is uh, environmental enrichment. Um, reducing the stress in the environment is shown to be pretty beneficial of managing fluted, the feline lower urinary tract disease. Uh, so increase vertical climbing surfaces. Give them little things to climb on and perch on on the walls or a cat tree, adding viewing and resting perches, eliminating negative reinforcement or a punishment of normal behaviors. Uh, so, you know, if a kitty's being a kitty, don't be mad at the kitty because kitty does what kitty does. <laughs> yeah. Increase positive interaction with mom and dad. So playtime, lots of pettings. Uh, make sure that litter box is kept nice and clean because all cats seem to really love a fresh and clean litter box. Mm-hmm. Implement some scratching posts. There's also this website called the Ohio State University Indoor Cat Initiative. This is a really great resource to provide for owners uh, because they have done research and have this entire website dedicated to making indoor cats happier through enrichment. And this is just it's just a great place to go. You should check out that website if you have a chance because it's really it's really <laughs> exciting and, and gives owners a lot of good information. Yep, check that out. And also you can use pheromone therapy, um, like feel away. They have those nifty little plugins that are supposed to make your cat calm and happy. Yeah. And there are actually some like actual studies about feel away in cats with lower urinary tract disease. That will probably cover whenever we do lower urinary tract disease. As a, <laughs> I mean, because I'm sure we'll do that as an episode. <laughs> okay, so we've talked already about the risk of reobstruction. We've also touched on some potential issues like cardiac arrhythmias from high potassium and uroabdomen, which means urine leakage in the, into the abdomen, secondary to a ruptured bladder. We talked about that when we were talking about looking with the ultrasound and making sure there wasn't urine hanging out in the abdomen. But what other complications or long-term issues can we see in these kitty cats, JJ? You can see issues like renal failure. The changes we discussed earlier that can affect the GFR can damage the kidneys permanently. Kitty is with azotemia that is not responding to treatment within 24 hours are likely to be experiencing renal failure. Sometimes they improve, but renal function will be compromised long-term. And these patients will need to be managed according to recommendations for patients with renal insufficiency. Uh, sometimes we see issues like uh, urethral laceration or tears. These are usually secondary to the catheterization. My nightmare. Yeah. Not Knock not. on wood. Knock on all the wood. This hasn't <laughs> happened to me, but oh my God, it's always <laughs> in the back of my mind when I'm unblocking these cats. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a scary possibility. And you can also see detrusor atony. Uh, the detrusor muscle is the muscle that contracts during urination. Sometimes when the bladder remains full for a long time, the muscle becomes stretched out and it may not snap back to normal form quickly. 
Uh, this occurs when the tight junctions of the detrusor muscle separate, and the floppiness makes contractions of the detrusor muscle weak and ineffective. Yeah. Patients with this condition may need prolonged urinary catheterization seven days or more. The bladder must be kept as small as possible to reestablish the tight junction connections. If prolonged catheterization is needed, this increases the risk of UTI, unfortunately. The cholinergic drug, bethanicol, yep. may be used in conjunction with prazosin or phenoxybenzavine to stimulate detrusor contractions once the patient is stabilized and there is no outflow resistance. Yeah. One of the most difficult to manage urinary obstruction cases that I've ever treated had detrusor atony. Ooh, it was a mm. nightmare. <laughs> but <laughs> that cat was in the hospital for like two weeks. Yeesh. Yeah. Was he catheterized the whole time? No, we could manually express him after a while. It was a boy kitty and he was so sweet and cute and fat. <laughs> and um, the owners, because of their job, could not do the manual expressions. So he actually just lived at the clinic for like two weeks. And he just lived in the office manager's office <laughs> uh, during the day and then went into a cage at night and everything. And everybody really grew attached to him. And he uh, he did eventually recover and a as far as I know, was still doing well a year later. Good. But that was, oh, that was one of those cases where, like, everyone in the hospital is so invested in the outcome at this point, oh, no. and the owners are out of money that we're just like, whoops, we forgot to charge for the past eight days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, you know, sometimes that happens. But, like, yeah. at that point, at that point, if the cat had not made it, there would be so many... Uh, of the staff that would be like devastated mm -hmm. so like at that point it was just like okay <laughs> we we just have to save this cat no matter what and luckily it worked out because sometimes sometimes those are can be sometimes they don't ever go back and then yeah. you have a cat who can't pee it's not good but anyway mm. okay the good news though is that most cats with urethral obstruction who undergo go the full treatment that we've just described recover Survival rate to discharge is reported to be 91 to 94%. That's pretty dang good. Yep. So, JJ, mm -hmm. what happened with George the kitty? George was given buprenorphine and midazolam for comfort. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, his owners were able to approve the full treatment, so yay. Good. A IV catheter was placed, and since he was fairly stable, uh, maintenance norm R was started. ECGs showed no abnormalities. Radiographs showed no evidence of urolifts. Ultrasound showed a large, intact urinary bladder and no free fluid in the abdomen. CBC showed no significant findings. Chemistry showed mild azotemia and mild hyperkalemia with no other abnormalities. Uh, George Kitty was very happy on his buprenorphine and, and midazolam. He was given a bit of IV propofol, intubated and maintained on isoflurane. His IV fluid rate was increased to the top end of the surgical rate at 5 mils per kg per hour since he was mildly azotemic and to support his blood pressure. He was monitored with blood pressure, ECG, and pulse oximetry. The front two-thirds of his body was covered with a forced warmed air device like a bear hugger for heat support. And the decision for intubation was fortunate because George was very difficult to catheterize. Oh, yeah. I've been Bad there. nugget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, ultimately, decompressive cystocentesis was performed, and this relieved enough pressure that a catheter could be passed with saline flush. Uh, George was hospitalized and treated with buprenorphine 
oral alprazolam, and prazosin. He recovered and was discharged home. But two weeks later, mm. guess what? Mm-hmm. He reobstructed. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Good thing you had that talk with the owners. Yep. Good thing we warned them so they <laughs> hopefully uh-huh. won't come in screaming about how you suck as a person. Yep. So Hopefully. Not a guarantee. <laughs> so full treatment was again elected, and a month later, reobstruction occurred again. Mm. He underwent a PU surgery. Following surgery, George recovered well and is still doing well to this day. He has managed long-term on prescription urinary tract diet and receives buprenorphine and Onsior for occasional flare-ups. And our friend George does not have any detectable long-term kidney damage from his episodes. That's good. Yay, I'm glad George. that they went to perianal urethrostomy for George because... Yep. <sighs> it seems gonna... like he was going to be a, a reoccurring nightmare with all that. Yeah. I, I personally follow the, th- the three strikes and you're out rule for mm-hmm. UO cats. <laughs> yep. Sometimes it's two strikes and you're out because the owners are like, I don't want to keep going through this. So sometimes mm-hmm. I'll offer it like the second one, you know. But anyway, <laughs> I'm super glad that George recovered eventually. Yes. Lord. <laughs> so if you have stories for us, if you have questions, concerns, situations for us to analyze <laughs> we're happy to read them please send them to introvetspodcast at gmail.com you can find us on social media we're on facebook and instagram and we're at introvets and don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast it really does help and we'll see you next time bye 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 <laughs>